Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spirits Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Katja Asaf Zakharov, Assistant Professor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem Law School and DAAD Center for German Studies, and Tim Schnettkoke, a professional photographer. We will discuss their article, Reading the Illegible, Can Law Understand Graffiti?, which will be published in the Connecticut Law Review. So, Katja, Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, hello, Brian. Thank you very much for having us here. It's a great opportunity to discuss our paper. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. For listeners who may not be all that embedded in the world of graffiti art, I wonder if you could start with kind of like a kind of potted history or potted introduction to to graffiti. Sort of what's the history? What kind of different forms might you see? And why are people creating graffiti, especially today? Best way to start this would be uh, late 70s, New York City. People, for whatever reason, started painting subway trains. And um, the basic idea behind that was that if you painted your name in your neighborhood, people would have come have, would have to come to your neighborhood to see your name. But whereas if you painted a train, it would travel all across the city. And basically, you'd become some kind of famous if you kept at it and kept going and going and going. And uh, this spread from New York around the world. And today, it's probably bigger as ever before. And through the internet, even if people don't see trains running with graffiti on them, they'll see photos of trains which got painted and cleaned. But uh, people still get to see everything. And um, the fascinating thing to me is that hardly anybody seems to be doing it for financial gain. Seems to be some kind of intrinsic motivation. People do it because they have to do it. And that is something that seems to irritate a lot of people. And they see advertising, they understand it because there is a product, you're supposed to buy it, and that is it. Whereas graffiti kind of works like advertising. It's one name, the name of a graffiti writer, repeated over and over and over again, like the name of a brand on billboards, on trains, on basically every surface uh, available. But with graffiti, you've got this name and you don't have a product. And uh, there are different forms from writing with a marker pen to doing big murals, to some people use spray paint, others uh, use brushes. Basically, uh, you make up the rules in a way that uh, serves you as an artist or as a graffiti writer. Some writers call themselves artists, others don't care about art. So there's a very wide variety of people doing things for different purposes. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you define graffiti for the purpose of the paper. Are there like specific characteristics that you would look to? And how would you distinguish graffiti from, for example, street art or public art more generally? Well, there are many definitions in literature for graffiti, and there is a big dispute uh, whether graffiti and street art are the same, or maybe graffiti is just one form 
of street art or whether these are two totally distinct phenomena. Uh, and our paper is not uh, really focused on this definition, but of course we had to define it for our paper. And the definition that works for us is that graffiti is actually street art, something painted or written on a, a visual surface anywhere in the city and which was not commissioned. It, uh, it, is, it might be illegal, but it doesn't have to be. The, uh, the important thing is that nobody asked for permission, nobody was given any permission order, or a, um, it was in no way a, um, in accordance to some plan, but it, it's just like Tim said, uh, all about the intrinsic motivation and the wish to express oneself. Well, so among other things, in your paper, you observe that there's a kind of tendency, especially for legal scholars, to think about graffiti in relation to legal doctrines, especially copyright. And you suggest that maybe copyright is a is a poor fit for graffiti. Why do you think that is? Um, well, the reason is that copyright is based on assumptions that are totally different from graffiti culture. Uh, copyright envisions an artist uh, or um, of any kind who is uh, um, most of all motivated by financial gain. And we can see it if we look at copyright, uh, especially in the U.S., uh, what this right has to offer. It's copyright, it's the right to copy, and most of all, it's a negative right to prevent others from copying and to profit um, from one's uh, work. So the more copies I sell or produce, the more the richer I become. And this is the motivation that uh, copyright has in its mind. And one additional motivation that copyright cares to a greater or lesser extent about is uh, fame and recognition. And uh, even the US law now it has uh, some kind of uh, a protection of moral rights to artists. In European jurisdictions, we find very extensive protection of um, this uh, right to recognition and to um, integrity of one's work. And uh, graffiti writers do not work for recognition, at least not the official recognition. They do not publish, obviously, their real names because... Uh, uh, they have every reason to stay uh, anonymous and not to be punished. And um, they cannot expect, of course, they, they don't expect financial gain for, gain for uh, their um, uh, creations, uh, but also they uh, cannot expect them to be preserved. Uh, they know that these uh, pieces are very uh, frequently uh, uh, whitewashed or uh, gone over by other graffiti painters. Well, you mentioned an anecdote in the paper I thought was really interesting, um, both in relation to the kind of five points dispute, but I was specifically taken by the one about the Berlin Wall, where you said that in sort of trying to wrestle with how to think about graffiti in copyright and ownership terms, the German government has said that there's no right to destroy 
or the, rather that the right to destroy a, a graffitied section of the Berlin Wall was fine, but that you couldn't sell it without the permission of the graffiti artist. So I was going to talk a little bit about that and w- what you think it says, if anything, about the kind of way we think about ownership and why it doesn't fit well with graffiti. Um, well, that's a very interesting question. Um, it's uh, really also a very interesting story about the uh, Berlin Wall uh, being painted in the 80s. And of course, these paintings were illegal and uh, it was a very uh, risky endeavor to, to paint them. And then suddenly when uh, with the... Uh, um, when the wall was torn down, these pieces were sold, and some of them were sold or given as presents. And then suddenly the graffiti writer said, "Wow, but these are our pieces. How how come you can sell them?" And of course, then the argument is, "But you painted them illegally, and we are with the German government actually own these walls." And so what do you want now? And uh, we could have destroyed them because it's our wall. Of course, we can destroy it. And the court said, yes, you can destroy it, but you cannot take advantage of it. If once you sell it and you sell it for a greater price because of the graffiti paintings, well, the wall is in itself an important artifact, but if it's without these paintings, you cannot sell it for a really good price. And with the paintings, it's really interesting. Then you cannot take advantage of these writings and uh, and not um, pay something to the, uh, to the graffiti writers. And I think it's really uh, very interesting. It's like their right is non-existent as long as it not as it is not monetarized. As long as it is, it is there on the wall, it actually enjoys no protection whatsoever. You can destroy it, you can remove it, you can write over it, you can do whatever you want. But once you sell it, once uh, money comes to play, then the game totally changes and uh, uh, then you start seeing any rights. And this is interesting because uh, this uh, once again shows how far the legal perception is from the core of graffiti cultures, which is not at all about money and which uh, distances itself from uh, commerce and uh, uh, this type uh, of rights. I was wondering, in, in relation to that particular circumstance, how did the graffiti artists in question and the community more broadly think about that outcome? Did they find it satisfying or were there kind of objections or or misgivings about the sort of way the German government and the courts resolved that particular issue? Uh, I must tell you, I don't know that. Uh, there were no uh, press releases whatsoever about it, but actually they won the case. Uh, they were asking for financial compensation, and this was actually the only thing they could ask for, given that the wall was not theirs, and they could not ask for just uh, to keep the paintings for themselves. So the only thing they they could ask was financial compensation, and this is what they ultimately got for the this uh, compensation. So I assume at least 
you know, legally they should be <laughs> satisfied because they, they got the remedy they were looking for. But uh, I guess there might be still some kind of uh, feeling that they were not fully underst understood because the uh, law really doesn't have the, the tools to capture uh, their motivations, whatever they could be. Well, I thought, was, I, I thought it was such an interesting analogy to the five points case, which you also mention in the article, which seems to have a lot of really similar dynamics where there was a sort of miscommunication that led to a financial resolution that I also am not totally convinced was satisfying entirely to the people in question. Yes, in five points, we have more evidence about the non-satisfactory result of this decision because the artists there were convinced that the masterpieces they created should stay. And this is what they they were looking for, and this is why they applied for injunctive relief before they were destroyed. And interestingly, the court, um, the judge was also convinced that this piece should not be destroyed. And he, uh, you could feel uh, by the language, uh, in the language of the decision, that he really liked the paintings himself, and he thought that they contributed a lot to uh, to the culture of New York, to people who li who live there, and so it, it's uh, like a cultural heritage and have immense value. For the public, but still, he said uh, suddenly with a sudden turn in this uh, um, justification, in this uh, uh, in the language of his decision, suddenly he writes. But still, uh, whatever the price of this uh, of these masterpieces could be, it could all be compensated with money. And once uh, uh, so, the owner could go ahead and destroy them. And uh, uh, in the worst case scenario, he uh, would have to pay money to compensate the artist. But actually, there is no damage that uh, uh, cannot be compensated with money. But it was uh, so far from being true. And actually, what the artists were uh, looking for was preserving the pieces. Many of them were established artists who actually had enough income and they didn't want to to earn some more uh, from this destruction of their pieces. Uh, this was not their motivation. They wanted the pieces to stay. And actually the judge also wanted it. Uh, and uh, But somehow he felt that the letter of law does not allow him to, uh, uh, to decide otherwise. So you also discussed certain proposals to regulate graffiti. And I wonder if you could talk about why you find those proposals generally unsatisfactory, especially in relationship to the concept of expressive outlaws that you use in the article. Uh, well, all the proposals to regulate graffiti, graffiti look at, uh, take a kind of an external look at it. Uh, most of them uh, look at graffiti as something to be uh, eliminated, to be eradicated in this way or another. So, um, not, not surprisingly, they would propose to... Uh, to increase the penalties, to introduce new penalties, to uh, 
to extend the police uh, search power and things like that. Uh, and but even people who uh, do uh, favor graffiti and advocate for um, creating some protection to graffiti, um, they uh, what whatever they suggest uh, has little to do with what uh, graffiti thinks about itself. What they suggest, uh, they actually suggest a very wide range of. Uh, um, um, of proposals, of, of regulations, for example, um, recognizing uh, copyrights and uh, extending copyright to graffiti or creating more legalized spaces, uh, more legal walls to paint on or uh, uh, art programs to graffiti writers. But uh, all these proposals either want to eliminate graffiti, which is um, of course, we, uh, this is not uh, what we want to do. And, uh, or they want to encourage it in certain ways. For example, to make certain styles more prominent by provi providing art programs or direct graffiti to certain walls. Uh, and, that, and this will also keep other walls clean. Yeah. And uh, these uh, proposals often... Um, argue that a city will actually look um, more uh, more beautiful, will look better if we have a graffiti on uh, many walls. But this is also an external look. It's, um, I would say, it's using graffiti as a tool to achieve another purpose. And uh, our proposal differs from all these proposals in that it uh, treats graffiti as expressive outlaw, as you said, which is um, some kind of action, some kind of behavior that a uh, of of law breaking behavior that actually does not seek any benefit uh, to the person who breaks the law, but uh, is seeking to uh, communicate a message. And uh, our proposal is actually to attend to this message and to um, we refer to the content of graffiti and not to ex its external form. Well, so you refer to this way of thinking about urban spaces as essentially a public forum for speech, and you, you you suggest that we ought to think about graffiti in those terms. What would that mean? Well, very simply, this would mean um, kind of um, expropriating the uh, outer, uh, the external surfaces of buildings, trains, and whatever surfaces that are publicly visible in our urban landscape and uh, actually make these, per uh, these surfaces um, accessible to anyone wishing to paint and write on them, to turn them into canvases of free expression, perhaps with uh, some exceptions like important historical buildings, uh, but uh, more or less that all our city looks like a collage of people's expression, uh, expressions and whoever wishes has the right uh, and the freedom to express him or herself on city walls using um, just paint or any other means. Well, so, so you make an observation I thought was really interesting, which was that, you know, the use of city walls is already regulated 
And what you're proposing is just a different way of regulating it. And I also really like the observation that, you know, the external walls or buildings of buildings are the internal walls of, of urban spaces. I, I guess the question I had was, how should we think about this sort of justification or kind of democratic consideration of this kind of regulation? I mean, is it the kind of thing that people ought to have to collectively agree on? Or is it something that we ought to look at more as a sort of expressive right that people have or should have to write on these surfaces? That's actually a tough one because it has never been done before. So However, you would uh, give it a try. It would be an experiment. But um, I'd like to see it as people's right to shape the city they live in and um, to be able to interact with the city they live in in a way that's not just consumption. And also maybe even if not, not only uh, by electing someone. Also because these issues um, are very, uh, very rarely mentioned or very, very rarely taken account of in elections. So actually when we choose our public representatives, uh, we choose them for other reasons than uh, how our city will really look. We don't uh, consider these issues. Uh, and that's why actually they are left uh, tot uh, almost totally free to decide as they wish how our cities will look, how the, uh, the zoning uh, ordinances will regulate the external surfaces of our cities. Uh, and indeed, if we if everyone would have the right to decide it him or herself, we will see a very very different uh, landscape. Uh, I am pretty sure. Well, so how might thinking about urban expression in this more kind of open, non-commercial way change the way that people think about expression more broadly? That's a very interesting question, um, because most of the expressions we are exposed to now are regulated in this way or another. Um, when we... It, if, for example, we want to see art, we will go to a museum and people have already selected for us works that they labeled as art and we should appreciate them. And if we don't, then maybe we have missed something. Uh, or, for example, if we, if we hear the news or read a book, then all these uh, things have uh, normally uh, been pre-selected for us. And if even on social media where uh, there is supposed to be some degree of freedom to read whatever people want, actually the algorithms already uh, pre-design the uh, um, content that we will see and uh, actually what we see is uh, more or less uh, the same as we have seen yesterday and the day before yesterday. They tend, this media tends to deliver us things that um, actually match and uh, to, uh, deepen our views. Uh, and I think that our proposal may change this picture by um, making a, a kind of mechanism that will expose people to expressions uh, they were not looking for 
unlike social media, and also expressions that are not uh, pre-controlled by anyone. Uh, nobody said it is art. You have to judge by yourself. Nobody will tell you whether this painting is valuable form of art or somebody just uh, without any talent has just drawn it. I, I think it, it will have a certain effect of democratization um, of, of uh, the perception of art and also of expression more generally, that not only people who have been given this role of public speakers have the right to speak, and not only people who we have already heard or similar persons or people who are very popular on social media have the right to speak, but anyone, our neighbor, persons we have no idea of uh, um, their lives, their existence, will suddenly have some voice in the, uh, in the public space. And we will all, we will be actually compelled uh, in a way uh, but I don't mean it negatively. We are also forced to see advertising, which is um, much uh, less educative for us. Uh, but we will be, uh, in, in a way, forced to be exposed to all kinds of expressions and not uh, only those that are in this way or another pre-selected for us. In your discussion of the relationship between graffiti and copyright, it struck me that at least part of what maybe you're suggesting in the paper is that we have a kind of institutional way of thinking of expression as fundamentally a means to an end. And what you're suggesting is that graffiti might help us think about expression as something valuable in and of itself and how we might reframe the way we think about expression in an institutional sense um, to sort of reflect that value in expression for its own sake. I reckon that's quite right. And um, if you look at art history, you need to keep in mind that a lot of artists whose work we value a lot today didn't do what they did and kind of get rich quick scheme. They died poor and uh, only now we value what they did and uh, they did whatever they did because they had to, because they had some kind of intrinsic motivation. And um, that is something I'd like to see, uh, well, that I'd like to bring out in other people as well. And will everything be pretty? I don't think so. But um, chances are that you'll be surprised by what you see. And um, I believe that this will encourage room for experimentation and bring up things that are quite unexpected. And probably with hindsight, um, people will see a great value in that, even if they don't recognize that straight away. Our attitude towards um, non-compensated art is a, or expression of any kind is very much ambivalent. Uh, as Tim said, uh, very often we, we would value some artistic works which were not made for money only years later. Whereas uh, when these works are made, uh, they are usually not valued and uh, because they're not uh, made for any compensation, it is difficult for 
for us, the public, the society, to judge what their value uh, might be. If it is a compensated work, then it is clear, okay, the payment is the value of this work, but why should anyone uh, paint a day and night where he or she uh, does not get any money, any compensation for this work? These people are often described as idle or crazy or uh, very much uh, impractical um, and are uh, actually condemned very often. And uh, what we hope to do is to change this picture by, by giving some some space and some recognition to this, uh, actually this urge, this uh, flame that many people have in them just to ex express themselves for the sake of expression without any further um, end. Well, Katja, Tim, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about this really interesting paper. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope listeners will check it out because there's a lot of really great and provocative ideas in there. Thank you very much for excellent questions and remarks. It was a great pleasure uh, being with you this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Here, just as sure as I'm a talking, Kilroy was here walking right where I've been walking. Seems like to me, everywhere I go, I just barely missed him. Now, where did he go? Kilroy was here standing on this terra firma. Kilroy was here, flew a bomber in from Burma. He's been in Paris and Tokyo, Amberilla, Texas, and Buffalo. When the Marines stormed the tropical isle, they stopped and started to cheer. They decided to claim that island their own, but a sign said Kilroy was here. Kilroy was here, wrote his name way up in Labrador. Kilroy was here, 30 days ahead of Eleanor. Folks never know just where he will appear. Look out behind you, Kilroy was here. Talking, Kilroy was here, walking right where I've been walking. Seems like to me everywhere I go, I just barely missed him. Now where did he go? Kilroy was here, standing on this terra firma. Kilroy was here, flew a bomber in from Burma. He's been in Paris and Tokyo, Amarillo, Texas, and Buffalo. I used to call on my gal every night, and late I would always appear. But tonight when I called, my sweetie had gone, and a sign said, Kill I was here! Kill 
Kilroy was here, wrote his name way up in Labrador. Kilroy was here, 30 days ahead of Eleanor. Folks never know just where he will appear. Look out behind you.